It's Monday, November 23rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Supernova, David Kretzman and Aaron Bush. Gentlemen. Good to be here. Good to see you. Yeah. <laughs> We've been uh, talking about this for a couple of weeks, and I said this on Thursday's Market Foolery. We've been doing this podcast for five years. We got more email from listeners about this topic, millennials and investing, than any other topic. I, and uh, that's why I'm really excited to be here. That's awesome. More so than usual. Um, if you are new to this podcast, and hopefully we have at least a couple of new listeners, uh, here at The Motley Fool, our mission is to help the world invest better. And something we hear all the time, not just from millennials, from the people of my generation, from people of all walks of life, something we hear all the time here at The Motley Fool is, I know it's important to invest, but I just don't know how to get started. And so that's what we're going to be doing today and tomorrow. We're going to be talking about how to get started in investing, and particularly if you're a millennial. So today's episode is going to focus on why to invest, how to get started, and how to begin building out a portfolio of 10 to 15 stocks, which is a really great starting point, a great aspirational starting point, I think, for new investors. And then on tomorrow's episode, we're going to talk about stocks, how to fill out that portfolio with specific stocks. We'll talk industries, different styles of investing, different approaches. And another question we get all the time, which is, when to sell? That's always a key question. But let's start with an email from Down Under, from Tim Dowling in Australia, who writes, I'm a young finance graduate from Australia. I'm 23 years old, and I understand the importance and benefits of long-term investing. However, my girlfriend neither sees the importance of nor trusts the stock market. Ooh. How can I enlighten her so that she can still utilize the stock market's two sharpest tools, compounded returns and time? I mean, honestly, and I say this as a married man, you might want to think about breaking up with her. No, it should be on the table. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, she's she's got a short-term focus, but you know what? It, it, it's interesting because I mean, joking aside, his girlfriend, that feeling she has, that lack of trust, that, she's not alone in that. There are a lot of people around the world who just look at the stock market and go, "It's gambling, it's rigged, it's set up for the fat cats and the wealthy people and young people, people who don't have a lot of money, don't have a shot at it." Yeah, I think uh, context is key, and uh, it's important first to recognize that when we talk about stocks, we're talking about businesses. Uh, when you buy a stock, you're buying a piece of a business. And a great way uh, here in the U.S., not necessarily down under, but here in the U.S., we can measure that with uh, the S&P 500, which is a collection of the 500 biggest companies in the United States. Uh, it's an index that tracks those biggest companies. It started in 1871. And I think it's an interesting stat. If you had put one dollar in the S and P 500 in 1871 and held that, you know, pass it down generation to generation, at the end of 2014, that one dollar would have turned into two and a quarter million dollars. Uh, and that's the magic of compound interest and time. Uh, so over time, uh, the S and P 500 on average returns about 10 to 12 percent each year, and you're not going to get that with you know, CDs, a savings account, or other investment. Real people. estate. Uh, I mean, gold. No, yeah, Bitcoin. all those things. <laughs> there, there's never been a more reliable uh, tool to generate wealth over the long term uh, than the stock market. Yeah, and and if she's skeptical, there's a really good graph you can pull up, and David might have seen this. Um, 
if you type in Google um, stocks for the long run, uh, just graph, it'll show a graph of stocks compared to all of the other different types of investing, starting you know back in the 1800s, and you can you can start to see when there were crashes here and there, but really stretched out over time, it's it's about straight up and to the right as as you can be. Well, and for people who are in their 20s and 30s, that's that's the advantage they have over someone like me who's pushing 50 years old is decades more time. And the longer you invest, the greater the compounding becomes. Yeah, well, let's look at, a, at an example of compound interest. So, let's say um, you know, you're starting out when you're 25 years old, you're going to say, "Okay, I'm going to Invest or save and invest $100 every month for the next 30 years. So by the time I'm 55 years old, I'll have been saving for 30 years every month. So again, $100 every month held for 30 years. If you're making 7% annually, which is less than what the stock market does on average over the long term, uh, you would have about $123,000 after 30 years. If you decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to keep doing that for another 10 years. So you're just going to keep putting $100 into the market for another 10 years um, every month. just lengthening your horizon from 30 years to 40 years, uh, your return after 40 years would be more than double. It would be $264,000. So, uh, the the longer you can save, and also like the more you can save and invest, uh, it, it really does remarkable things. Email from Mikhail Shimanov who writes: I work and get benefits such as a 401k with a six percent match from my employer. Yet, I think out of all my coworkers and friends, none of them invest in it. Their view is they don't want to tie up their money. I know there's a loan feature associated with a majority of 401k plans, but it feels like I'm, or they are, missing something if so many don't want to invest into it. First of all, that's great that your company or, or your employer is giving you a 6% match, because that's a little something, Aaron, we like to call free money. Yep. Free pre-tax money. Can't argue with that. Yeah. And it touches on something that you had mentioned, David, which is for a lot of people, just starting with a 401k plan or just a simple S&P 500 index fund, which is a mutual fund that just buys pieces of the 500 biggest companies, Mm -hmm. that's a great start. And for a lot of people, that's all they want to do. At The Motley Fool, we're interested in stocks and businesses and becoming part owners of companies, so we are into the stocks. But I mean, Aaron, that, is there a polite way for Mikhail to just tell his coworkers and friends you are totally missing out by not? Yeah, by they're, they're giving up free money. I mean, if it's a match, that's an automatic 100% return, which, I mean, just all investors envy that, but your company is basically giving that straight to you. So it's definitely them that are missing out on something, not you. Yeah, there's no reason not to do it. Uh, we got a couple email from listeners who touched on something that I think is is common, particularly for millennials, and that is uh, when you're in your 20s or 30s, your income is on average not as high as it's going to be. A lot of people have college loans that they're paying off. Um, uh, Brian Bosak, uh, who lives here in the area, uh, wrote to us. Um, I feel like I fit in the category of income-rich, asset-poor investors. Uh, I'm making a decent salary, but where I live is quite expensive. Um, he's got some uh, student debt. His wife has some student debt. And so, his question, what can I do to invest in companies when my monthly contribution toward this end is likely not enough to purchase a single share of some of them? And we'll we'll get into stocks more tomorrow, but I think just the general idea of sticker shock 
You know, if you walk into any store and you you're looking whether it's groceries or clothing or whatever, if something strikes you as expensive, that's a gut reaction. And the same thing happens in the stock market where it's like, well, wait a minute, a single share of Priceline is thirteen hundred dollars. How can I buy that? Yeah, I mean, it's important to recognize uh, when you're talking about um, stocks that a stock that's five dollars is not necessarily cheaper than a stock that's thirty dollars or a hundred dollars. So Berkshire Hathaway, which is you know one of the the greatest companies of the past I don't know fifty years, mm-hmm. run by Warren Buffett, one of the richest people in the country, a very famous investor. Uh, you know, a share of Berkshire Hathaway now trades for you know one hundred twenty thousand dollars or something like that, some insane amount. Uh, but that doesn't mean um, that it's necessarily, you know, a, a more expensive stock uh, or an overvalued stock compared to something that's three dollars. What counts is the underlying business, not necessarily the price you're paying for the share. And we'll talk more about brokerages later in this episode. But mm-hmm. there are ways to invest where you're just setting aside even you know twenty five, fifty dollars a month. It's an automatic, just like a four hundred one k plan, where there's an automatic deduction. Which we love. We're huge fans of the automatic uh, investing tool. There are ways to just automatically invest in partial shares. Yeah, yeah. What counts is the amount you're investing, not the amount of shares. So whether you're buying one share of a stock that's at $100 or 10 shares of a stock that's at $10, either way, you've invested $100. That's that's what you should focus on, not the number of shares you're buying. Yeah, one thing uh, I'll say really quickly though is that it really does not take much to get started, but if you still have a lot of debt. And you will need your money to, you know, buy a house or something like that in the next, you know, five or so years. There's nothing wrong with staying on the sidelines to, to you know, settle financially in other ways. Because ultimately, if you invest that money and but still have this debt with interest rate piling up, and then you might lose money in the stock market, might not be able to pay your down payment on your house, you could be worse off in the end. So, there really is nothing wrong delaying and focusing on other priorities, too. We got a question along those lines. Actually, a couple. One from Mark Kowalski in London, uh, one from Bradley Renshaw uh, at Bradley University. Um, Mark, touching on the idea of saving up to buy a home, um, Bradley looking at graduating with sort of navigating that large amount of college debt. Mm-hmm. and. You're absolutely right. There's nothing wrong with sitting on the sidelines. And I think that when we talk about investing in stocks, we are talking about money that we don't need for at least five years. Ideally, not for 10 years Mm -hmm. or even longer. But if you're looking at money that you're going to need in the next five years or so, you don't want to put that in stocks because, you know, on average, the market goes up. Over time, but we have seen years where, I mean, this year, year to date, the market's flat. We're going to have some down years. So you definitely want to think in terms of, okay, is this money that I need in the next five years? Yeah, on average, uh, every three years, for two out of every three years, the market will be up. But that means one out of every three years, the market will be down. It's not, you know, to a science, but on average, over time, that that is the case. So you are going to have years where the market might be down even for a couple years or something. So any money you put in stocks should really be money that you don't. That you're not banking on using within at least five years, and ideally a lot longer. Got a great email from Lucas Coffey, who identified himself as an older millennial. He's 33, um, and offered up his biggest mistake, which is let's just pause for a moment because I think one of the things that uh, sets the Motley Fool apart from a lot of other financial organizations is 
in a weird way, we celebrate our mistakes. We like to we like to look at our mistakes because those can be really instructive in how we invest in the future. So, shout out to Lucas for coming up with his biggest mistake, which was as, as he writes, "I wish I would have known to start a Roth IRA earlier. I've always invested in a brokerage account through my bank. Come to find out that I could have been getting a tax break had I known." Uh, not a particularly sexy topic, taxes. But when it comes to investing, a Roth IRA, that, that's a really tax-efficient way to go about it. Yeah, so so kind of how that works is that you do pay your taxes up front, but after that, you'll never have to pay taxes on that money again. So, if you invest that money in stocks, you'll never have to pay capital gains. And when you withdraw it for retirement, you won't have to pay taxes there. And then, and then also, one last point is, if you're like most of us and you are investing in stocks, you're probably going to end up in a wealthier tax bracket in the future, um, which also is just kind of an advantage to you, too. That's a nice problem to have. I'm just, oh, yeah. you know, no one likes to pay taxes, but being in a wealthier tax bracket, as, as problems go around the world, <laughs> that's, that's not high on the list. I don't not think. a bad one. Not a bad one to have. Um, uh, lest any of our listeners think that uh, we're only getting emails from millennials, uh, a very helpful email from Gail Ortenzi, who writes, I, have, uh, I don't have a question, but I want to share a suggestion. Because we actually did get some email from uh, older listeners who were saying, ah, I'm really looking forward to these episodes because I've got children who I'm trying to get interested in investing. And uh, so, a great suggestion from Gail, who writes, I have two sons in their late 20s with college degrees, uh, but no job in their field and no 401k plans. I've been investing in stocks for 20 years, and I'm a long-time Stock Advisor subscriber. Both sons said they wanted to buy some stocks someday. Last January, I made them a proposition. I would match up to $1,000 for each of them if they opened and funded a Roth IRA and discussed their first stock picks with me. Both sons took me up on my proposition and have purchased several stocks and they seem hooked. One son went on to max out his Roth annual contribution, which is, I mean, that's fantastic. And that's great. Mm-hmm. I'm, now I'm just wondering if, if Gail will adopt me. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that's you know that's a great that's such a great way uh, to to get your kids investing. And if and if you have kids who are younger than that, and I've I've seen this with my children is you know there's there's only so much interest a a ten year old is gonna <laughs> is gonna have in investing, so but back to what you were saying, David, the idea of don't think of it as stocks, think of it as companies, think of it as being a part owner of a business, and Gail, I think that's just a phenomenal way to just say no 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 as opposed to just saying here's some money go invest it. It's like no 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 I'm gonna be your maternal 401k plan. I'm gonna match the money. And we're gonna we're gonna discuss the picks as well. Yeah, it's a great way just to reward that saving and investing mentality. So as a parent, you can think, okay, how, you know what behavior you you want your kids to have, where they're saving money, they're thinking of paying themselves first, and investing and planning for their future. So I think the the idea of matching, you know, their their contributions to their Roth is is a great way to go. And then. You know, I, I think kids. Uh, I mean, for me, like I started when I was 12 years old. Aaron started around the same age as well. For me, it was just fascinating to to really start to comprehend that you can actually own a piece of the businesses around you. So maybe it's you know Monster Energy or Starbucks or Chipotle. Connect kids with the companies and the products and services that they love. And, you know, maybe Disney, uh, and and that's a great way to maybe pique their interest too. Your dad got you in investing, right? Yeah, my dad. He was an early subscriber to to the Motley Fool, so the Stock Advisor and Hidden Gems newsletters that we have. I, I would just 
kind of read over his shoulder as he was looking at those newsletters and start asking him, you know, what is this stock and like how can you actually own a piece of a company? And I had saved up, you know, a little money doing different odd jobs, and um, he's like, man, you love investing, so you're you're so interested in this, you know, why don't we uh, set up a custodial investing account and you can invest your own money? So that that's how I got started. And Aaron, it was your mom who got you investing, right? Yeah, and it's a very similar story to David too. But yeah, very grateful. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, final question before we wrap up from Carl Larson in Seattle. Could you provide some insight on good low-cost brokerages for the foolish investor that trades infrequently? Any insight that you can provide would be of great help and will certainly assist me in many years of foolish low-cost investing. Uh, great question, and that's that's one of those sort of nuts and bolts questions that we get all the time as well. Is just sort of how do I start? And you know, I, I always think that. Um, you know, it's it's uh, unfortunate that we're taught at an early age what a bank account is. It would be also really great if we were taught at an early age what an investing account is, because from a mechanics standpoint, it's kind of the same thing. Like if you go to a bank and just open up an account, you you deposit some money, that's your account. It's kind of the same thing with a brokerage. Pretty much, yeah. It, the the process of setting up a brokerage account is really. Uh, similar to opening a bank account, like you said, and once you open a brokerage account, uh, then you can connect it to to your bank account, and you know it can all be digital. So you can just say, okay, transfer you know two hundred dollars into my brokerage account, and then you can use that money to buy stocks. Uh, the good news for anyone looking for brokerage, uh, a, a low cost brokerage, you got a lot of options out there. Um, I have my money with TD Ameritrade. Aaron, you you have Fidelity. Fidelity, Fidelity yeah. and I'm with uh, First Trade. You're with First Trade. Um, we have a section on Fool.com, our website. Um, it's just called uh, Find a Broker that has a handy chart that compares what is it like for um, E Trade, TD Ameritrade, Scott Trade, Fidelity, Capital One, etc. Um, and th- again, the good news for investors who are looking for an account is a lot of these, uh, obviously, every business is different, but the thing is, they're not all that different in terms of what the commissions are. Some are, where you're going to pay $10 a trade, you're going to pay $8 a trade, that sort of thing. So, if you are an investor who's not trading frequently, and I'm one of those investors, I, I only make a couple of trades a year probably. Uh, you know, it's not a great difference, eight to ten dollars, and then you look at, well, what are the account minimums that you have, and and like a lot of things in investing, this is one of those things that's just gotten more consumer friendly over time. That gone are the days where oh no, you you have to start with a hundred thousand dollars or that sort of thing. No, you can open a brokerage account with five hundred bucks for some of them. Yeah, some I don't think even have minimums. Uh, I'd have to double check that, but yeah, go go online, check out the Fools uh, site or find a broker uh, section on the site because really there are so many options. Either way, you're going to be spending five to ten dollars uh, for commissions. But here at the Fool, we don't encourage you to buy and sell stocks a lot. So right. the the like you said, the the commission itself isn't what you should get hung up on. And, and this is another thing that's good. All of these businesses would be happy. To serve you, oh, yeah. so I mean, you can go on our site. There are other sites that have similar charts that will just sort of break it down. They're not that hard to find online, uh, but I'm sure you. Could, I mean, I, even though I have my money with Ameritrade, I still get stuff in the mail or emails, that sort of thing. Move your, you know, and there, some of these brokerages are offering some pretty sweet deals in terms of like, hey, open an account, and you know, it's it's a it's a whole lot better than uh, you know the. 
what is the cliche of, of I don't know, 40 years ago, open a bank account and, uh, and you get a free toaster. Yeah, <laughs> nobody's offering a toaster anymore. I don't like a toaster, though. I mean, come on. You know what? I'm going to see what I can do to get you a toaster. The holidays nice. are coming up. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe a little something just for you. There you go. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode. David Kretzman, Aaron Bush, thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. Thank you. We will be back tomorrow. We will be back with part two of Millennials and Investor. We're going to talk stocks. We're going to talk industries, strategies, and when to sell. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.